I'm exceptionally grateful for all of our musicians in this season. I was reminded this morning that they are eager to play, but Christmas songs are not easy to play. <laughs> and some of them are not easy to sing. So uh, I'm thankful for all the preparation that they do and the hard work and the effort and the intentionality. And very, very grateful for them and for all of you that I've been able to walk into a sanctuary on Sunday morning and it is filled with the sound of people proclaiming the great glory and the hope that comes exclusively through Jesus Christ. A couple of things I want to draw your attention to in the bulletin, and I may be able to hit these again later, but before we get any further, let me just say that we have lots of uh, small group Christmas parties today. The Jeff Collins, Mark Abel-led group is in the fellowship hall. When? When did you get done? As soon as I get done. No pressure, but I'm going to get through about four. <laughs> I may be able to accommodate. But we have an elder meeting right after the service. Uh, let's see. The John Lucas, uh, Jason Ema group, where do you guys meet? Here at 4 o'clock. 4 o'clock here this afternoon in the C.J. Harris, uh, Chris Abner-led group. We'll be at Pat Chair Millian's house, which is right around the corner from 5 to 7. 5 to 7. Is that closer with you guys? Did it really? I couldn't find the title website. Whatever the website says is correct. <laughs> do, do what the website says. 6 to 7.30, is that what it says? Yeah. 6 o'clock at the Milligan's house. 6 o'clock at the Milligan's. That's what we're doing right there. And uh, so the, just want to make you all aware of that 6 o'clock at the Milligan's house, and I think that covers everybody. Uh, we do have Christmas card bags in the hallway. Uh, that is part of our tradition here at Rockwell Bible Church. If you would like to save the postage and share a Christmas card with someone in our congregation, there are 31 of those. Uh, thank you to Michelle Harris for taking care of those. And then our Christmas candlelight service is coming out in just a little over a week on Monday, December 23rd. And that will start at 6.30. That's about an hour-long service. And we'll have a fellowship after so, uh, thankful uh, for those who have volunteered to help out, and we will be in touch with you this week about decorating and all the rest. Uh, and we, uh, the church, will provide drinks and some savory things. But I have a sign-up sheet here that I'm going to pass around. I'm going to hand it over here to the Harris's folks and let it get its way around the sanctuary. A sign-up sheet to bring uh, something sweet that evening. Cookies, uh, brownies, pie, etc. Um, I don't know if the colors will be here, but... But Beanie Cones does make the best pecan pie I've ever eaten in my life. So if I can put public pressure on her to add things to that, I just, you know, Jesus loves you, but he really loves you when you pie. Just want to make you aware of that. All right. Let me go ahead and pray for us. We will dive into Luke chapter 1 this morning. Luke chapter 1. Father, you are so generous to us. You are so kind. You are so merciful. You are so compassionate. You are so willing to engage us that you sent your Son, Jesus, fully God, to take on flesh, to live among us, to teach us your heart and how to please you, to model for us perfect living, to die for our sins, to rise again, and one day to return to bring us I pray that we would have a Christ-full morning in our hearts and 
in our words and in our worship. It's in His name I pray. Amen. Luke chapter 1, and we'll start around verse 67. The argument that has emerged out of the season that I have tried to encourage you to embrace in the last couple of weeks is something like this. Advent is a great season for people in need of hope. Advent is a great season for people in need of hope. It's easy, I think. Well, it's the Christmas season and think of it as an exclusively cheerful season. Happy, saccharine, bright, sweet enough to give you cavities, walking through the mall and hearing, you know, here comes Santa Claus, out on the rooftop. And I heard a poet the other day, he was on the radio, and he said, What do we have to offer as Christians, be not believers? What do we have to offer as Christians to those whose lives are not what they ought to be? He said, all my nights are sleepless and all my bones are glass. What do you offer someone like me? Well, we offer you more than platitudes. We offer you more than bumper sticker theology. We offer you Advent. For those who have lost loved ones or those who are fighting battles that only they know about. For those who are sick. For those who look around the world and recognize that all is not as it should be, we offer you this unmitigated, unaided hope. Hope in Jesus Christ. It's what we sing about this morning, though. Come, oh come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel who mourns in lowly exile. Maybe my favorite of uh, all the Christmas hymns, Old Holy Night, the stars are brightly shining. It is the night of the Jews. Long lay the world in what? Sin and error. Pining. Till he appeared and the soul finally felt its In many ways, this is the story of Christmas. And it's the story of Israel. And it's the story that Zechariah tells about here in Luke chapter so, in verse 57, we find out who Zechariah is. Now, the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. Her son's name was John. It's John the Baptist. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown a great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, no, we should be called John. And they said to her, well, none of your relatives are called John. And they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted to be called. And he asked for a writing to him. He wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was open and his tongue loosed and he spoke. Blessing to God and fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid up in their hearts saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with them. Zechariah. This husband to Elizabeth, a woman who's in her advanced stage of a miraculous <laughs> has been mute for months. And in the exact moment when God allows him to speak again, he sings a song to the entirety 
not just to the people who can hear his voice, but we know the good news will spread to the entirety of the hill country of Judea. A song where he blesses the Lord. The Latin word for blessing there is benedictus. And so sometimes in your Bible you'll see that note. Mary's song, I magnify the Lord, magnificat. Zechariah's song, bless the Lord, it's the benedictus. That's why we call it what it is. And that's what we're going to examine this morning. It has two major parts, the benedictus. In the first part, it speaks of an earth-bound hope. 67 through 71. I hope here on earth. I hope that you can see it, touch, and feel. A visceral, terrestrial hope. Political, social, maybe even militarism. In the second half, 72 through 75, there's a slightly higher hope. It's a spiritual You'll notice this song is a lot different from Mary's song. Uh, Mary's song, Magnificat, is intensely personal. How people will call me blessed. How the Lord has gone generously to me. Zechariah's song is not really personal. Zechariah is a priest, you remember. And his song is almost as if the nation of Israel, the people to whom he represented the Lord, it's almost as if Israel is singing this song. It's about Israel's history. It's about the covenants that God made with Israel. And it's about the hope that the nation of Israel has. And so if we're talking about the need for hope, we can see how in Joseph's life he was in desperate need of hope. And we can see how in Mary's life she was in desperate need of hope. But especially here now in the Benedictus, we can see how desperately and overwhelmingly and piteously the nation of Israel needed hope. Israel, given every advantage by God, finds itself generation after generation wrecked by the consequences of its own sin never able to fully actualize all of the blessings that God promised them. And it had been one national embarrassment after the other. They finally make their way into the promised land. They have to fight the natives who live there in Canaan generation after generation. They finally get a united kingdom. It lasts for three kings and then breaks into pieces. There's some sense of a story within the nation of Israel, the ten northern tribes, wiped out by Syria. The two southern tribes, taken away for an entire generation to Babylon. Babylon is conquered by the Medes. That's now who Israel answers to. And then the Persians, and that's who they're going to answer to. And finally, here comes Rome. Maybe the greatest power in the ancient world. And all of Israel's hopes for unity and for righteousness and for autonomy and for peace and for respect among all the other nations on the earth is washed. As they are not now the highest point among all the nations, they're an annex to an unholy unmerciful, ungentrifying empire. Let it grow. These are people who need hope. 
Zechariah. He says in verse 67, this is where we get introduced to who he is as a person. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, interesting, already, here's his character. Uh, we're going to learn two things about him. One is explicit, one is implicit. The explicit is he's filled with the Holy Spirit. Prior to the giving of the Holy Spirit, after the ascension of Jesus Christ there at Pentecost, it was not as though every person who believed and who had placed their faith in the God of Israel alone was filled with the Holy Spirit. But Zechariah, on this occasion, is filled with the Holy Spirit. That's a special note. This didn't happen all the time to everyone. He's filled with the Holy Spirit explicitly. We know that about him. Implicitly, we know that he is intensely familiar with the Old Testament prophecies. He knows this book inside and out. And if we're making an observation that's true of the three people that we've seen so far, of Joseph and of Mary and of Zechariah, all three of them know the book. If there is no other application that can be withdrawn out of these weeks, hopefully you'll see this. We have been called by God to do extraordinary, world-changing things. And to get ready to do those things, you need to know what's in this world. Hope is coming. And this is what he says starting here in verse 69. Again, two parts. Earthly hope and spiritual hope. Uh, verse 68. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. And he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from old that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Fascinating what's happening here. We're finding a theme that summarizes all of Luke chapter 1. It's probably this. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Interesting. That term is used not only here at the beginning of the Benedictus, but also at the end of the Benedictus. It's a literary device known as inclusio. He's drawn together this notion that God is visiting his people. We know that that is going to be fulfilled literally, right? And you shall call his name Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. God is visiting his people. But something else interesting is happening. <clears throat> All of the references that are being made throughout the Benedictus, you see, are, uh, some of them are exact quotes from the Old Testament, Almost every line, almost every word is an allusion to a Old Testament passage. I can't give you a specific number. Scholars wildly disagree about how many times the Old Testament is at least alluded to, but it's safe to say that it is dozens, if not hundreds of times, hundreds of passages. It is chock full of Old Testament prophecy and promise. And here in these first few verses, we know that the promise that's being alluded to here is the Davidic covenant. Listen again to the kinds of things that are said here. For he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spoke by the mouth of the Holy Prophets from all that we should be saved from the hands of our enemies. Maybe you've never heard the Davidic covenant, this promise. 
So once you go back into the Old Testament, to a historical book called Second Samuel, Second Samuel, we know from reading the Old Testament that our God is a promise-making God. And if we're finding a way to organize how the Old Testament is written, one of the easiest ways to outline the meaning and flow of the Old Testament is to do it by looking at all those promises. There are promises made to Adam and Eve, right? You're going to get down the start, and you're going to die. And in between those two points, you're going to toil, not only in the work of your hands, but also in labor. But eventually, there is one who's going to come, who's going to crush the head of the serpent. That's one of those early promises made here. There's a promise made to Noah. Covenant made with him. There's no way in covenant. I will never destroy the earth with water again. And I'll put a symbol in the sky so that you can be reminded of that covenant. There's a covenant made with Abraham. We'll come back to that in just a minute. This is a covenant made with Moses. We talked about that in our study of Deuteronomy. If you obey me, I'll bless you. If you disobey me, there will be consequences. Dire consequences. And then there's a covenant made with David. David is the first king in Israel chosen by God. And he's anointed as king. And here, maybe at the height of David's day, in 2 Samuel 7, the Lord sends a prophet to talk to him, and he makes a promise, a covenant, unconditional covenant. And this is what he says, starting in verse 4. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling, where that's death. In all the places where I have moved, with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, of Israel who might manage to shepherd my people of Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house in secret? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from the following the sheep, that you should be a prince over my people of Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all of your enemies before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from your enemies. Moreover, declares the Lord, to you that the Lord will make you a house when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers. I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Three parts to the Davidic covenant, the promise that's made there. If you write notes down, it would be Helpful to write down a couple of other passages where this covenant is laid out even fuller. First uh, Chronicles 17, First Chronicles 17, 11 through 14. 
And 2 Chronicles 6, 2 Chronicles 6, 16. These are the passages where we get told the explicit details of the Davidic covenant. It's got three parts. Three parts at least. Number one, land. I'm going to give you a place. I need to know that you're going to have a place. We know that throughout Israel's history, it has occasionally had a place. It had a place in the reigns of Saul and David and Solomon. It had a fractured place in the divided kingdom. It was taken out of that place in the Babylonian exile. But it rarely, in its history, had a united kingdom with the full boundaries promised to it under its own rule, unmolested by the other nations. Almost never in its history did it enjoy that privilege. Land. Number one, land. Two, you're going to have a king from David's line. A king from David's line. Last couple of weeks on Netflix, we've been watching The Crown, a series about Elizabeth, her ascension to the throne, and all the historical drama that came about there. This season, we keep seeing Charles, and how Charles will be the next king, and we keep wondering when he's going to die, so he can finally be king, and going through all of that. Right? They don't elect a new king every four years. Uh, the family line is passed down, and so and so, and we hear how we get kings. So it'll be the kingdom of Israel. David's sons and grandsons, great grandsons, those are the ones who rule on the throne of Jerusalem. So we have land, we have a Davidic king, and finally we have an eternal rule. An eternal rule. It's not just enough that we get the Davidic king, even a good one. We get a good one forever. And never and never and never and never. This is what we're looking for. So I want you to imagine for just a moment uh, what it would be like to have a great king only to see him deposed a couple of years later or murdered in the middle of the night by assassins or killed on the battlefield defending the honor of the Lord. They, they rarely had kings who lasted for more than uh, 30 or 40 years, if that. So just picture for a second you're a kid and you get him on Christmas morning. And you run downstairs. And beneath the tree are a pile of presents. And then mom and dad come down and they let you just tear and get apart like Tasmanian devil style. Papers flying everywhere, and you get all your room, and you get the stuff out of the boxes and you start playing with it. And about ten minutes later, dad looks around and says, Alright, well, time to pack it up. Take it back to the store. We save the receipt for everything. What? You're going to take away all the Yeah, we gave it to you, didn't we? <coughs> I guess. Don't we get to keep it? Oh, no, you don't get to keep it. Maybe another. This is often how Israel felt about getting to peace. We have a great king. He reads the word of the Lord, applies it to his own heart, and trumpets it over the entirety of the nation. And the next king, total done. Worships Baal. Sets up Ashropole in the holy city of God. We don't seem to get to keep the Davidic king until the one will come. The one who will come and rule on David's throne, not for a generation, not for a lifetime, but forever. Now, it's great. If you have spent any amount of time listening to the last two weeks, you will have noticed that there is 
an awful lot of kingly language in Matthew chapter 1 and in Luke chapter 1. In fact, the Gospels are replete with king language, the epistles and even the apocalyptic literature, the book of Revelation. We find king language over and over and over. We find king language specifically related to David. And the one who would come from his only line. Maybe my favorite is here in the triumphal entries when Jesus is coming into Jerusalem the last week of his life. The disciples did just as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the gold and put them, uh, their cloaks on them and he sat on them. And most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road and cut branches from the trees and spread them out on the road. The crowds went before him and those that were following him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. There was at least a large faction of Israel, even during the life of Jesus, that understood that the king who would come, the king who would reign forever, the one who would fulfill this promise for eternity to Israel, was nothing less than Jesus himself. So here are people who have been maligned, over and over and over again. They had constant enemies. Have never been the big dog in the fight. And finally we're told, here is the king, the one you have waited for for a millennium. He's here. You can see how a desperate person is finding overwhelming hope in that place. He says, He has raised up for us a horn of salvation. And there are no end to the number of references in the Old Testament that speak of a horn of salvation. By signing the Davidic covenant, Zechariah proves God's intent to deliver the people from their enemies. It's literal, not figurative. You need to wrestle the promise that's being fulfilled here, we need to reckon with literally. Here's what I mean by that. If I were trying to score easy preaching points this morning, I might say something along the lines of, he's going to deliver us from our enemies. You have that boss at work and he doesn't like you. Well, Jesus has come to deliver you from your enemies. You have that tax man calling you from the government. He, he has come to deliver you from your enemies. You have... That bill that's got to be paid, well, he's going to deliver you from the man who's trying to do. You have that doctor who's only got bad news. He's going to deliver you from the well, Jesus can deliver you from all of these things. But we want to make sure that when we talk about the coming of King Jesus, we're not applying that figuratively. We're applying that literally. There is a literal king on a literal throne in a literal city, in a literal kingdom who will rule in literal peace and justice and righteousness. This is a promise not just for people 2,000 years ago. It's a promise for you. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you are in your heart of hearts a monarchist. We enjoy the privilege that we get to vote. Or at least we trudge through it in some elections. But you were made to want a king. And your king is coming. And he will rule you. His servant, sons, and daughters. 
That's the cause that's being made. Now, uh, we have an advantage that they didn't have then, right, in the Old Testament. We know things that David never knew. We know things like who this person is. We know Jesus. We've heard Jesus speak. We've seen Jesus' face. On this side of AD, we know who Jesus is. And yet, it's a kingdom that has not been brought out totally. We might say it this way. It's a kingdom that has been inaugurated. We know our king. But it's a kingdom that has not yet been he is not here now on David's throne in Jerusalem. The first thousand years of his hasn't started, not explicitly so. He has already come and has not yet fulfilled everything made out in the good God. Has already not yet tension. Is something that is helpful for us to pass away because of Accept the hope that comes through Jesus Christ on begging and pining for the The living between the walls. He goes on to say in verse 72, What else has God done here? Blessed is the Lord, the God of Israel, verse 72, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us, that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him for how long? All our days. Now, in the first half of the Benedictus, he quotes this promise from 2 Samuel chapter 7 that God will send the king. In the second half of the Benedictus, he quotes a promise from Genesis chapter 12, a covenant or a promise that was made to Abraham. Here is the forefather of all forefathers in the nation of Israel. And in Genesis chapter 12, and I'll turn back there, you don't have to turn there if you don't want to. In Genesis chapter 12, we get introduced to the terms of that covenant. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and from your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. In him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Just like the Davidic covenant, we're looking at three separate parts here. We're looking at the land. He's going to give us a place. He is going to rule from a specific geographical point. This is what's coming. Secondly, he's going to give to Abraham so many sons and daughters that will be like counting the stars in the sky and the grains of sand and all the shores and all the oceans of the world. He's going to give them a nation's birth of great, great grandchildren. And finally, he says, I'm going to bless you and use you as a blessing. The word bless is used like six times in four verses. It's used over and over again. Now, a passage that I do want you to turn to, because I want you to see this with your own eyes, is Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. Let me just give you a spoiler. When Zechariah quotes the Davidic covenant, he makes it clear Jesus is the Davidic king. When Zechariah quotes the Abrahamic covenant, he makes it clear that Jesus is the promised Abrahamic blessing. 
And that's exactly what Paul preaches here in Galatians chapter 2. So he starts in verse 7, Galatians 3. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. He's quoting Genesis chapter 12 then. How are we going to bless all the nations? We're going to bless them by sending a Messiah to die for their sins and to rise again to give eternal life, or at least a prospect of it in faith, not just to Israel, but to all the nations, Gentiles. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For those who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. And then he goes on to say in verse 11, Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith, but the law is not of faith. Remember, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming the curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. In verse 14, here's the, right, the big punch. What are we looking for when we're asking for fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant? This blessing, verse 14, is the answer. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. How are we sealed? How are we indwelled? How are we secured in the righteousness of God himself so that we are worthy to stand in his holy place? By the work of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of the promised blessing of the Abrahamic Now, here's where it gets interesting. The way that Zechariah interprets this passage in Luke chapter 1 should tell us a lot about how he views this core of salvation as God. When he says the Davidic covenant will be fulfilled in Jesus, we know that there's a we have a king, but the kingdom has not been fully realized. The kingdom has come and is still coming. Jesus rules, but is not ruling in the fullest consummation that we anticipate when he comes and reigns for a thousand years from his throne in Jerusalem. And it seems as if Zechariah is saying here of the Abrahamic covenant that it's both come and coming. Take a look again at what he says in our day. Extrapolations of the Abraham covenant. There in Google. Uh, to show mercy promised to our fathers, verse 72, that 72, that we be delivered from the hands of our enemies, might serve them without fear, in holiness and in righteousness before him all our days. What does Zechariah think it means? to fulfill the Abraham covenant. It's not just that God will declare us righteous, but also that he will make us righteous. It's not just that we stand before God having the righteousness of Jesus Christ accrued to us and imputed to us, but that we will actually serve him fearlessly, righteously, and in holy measure, all day, every day. That's that they both fulfilled yet. 
in me. I can say that. I have been declared righteous, and yet at the same time, I'm still being made righteous. There are still days of fear. There are still days of avoidance. There are still days of unrighteousness. Maybe <laughs> at least a couple of times. It is both come and it is coming. This is a covenant whose blessings I think have been inaugurated, but not fully possible. And here's where this morning gets into the scope of the season. And the scope of this whole series. We know infinitely more than our Old Testament brothers and sisters do. Jesus has come. First Advent is one of the three great tent poles of history. There are three moments in history. Three moments on which everything else ends. The first is creation. If we do not <coughs> God as creator, lose the entire trajectory of Scripture. It's his power, his authority, and his plan that's invested in very early chapters of the Bible. The second, the second temple which upholds everything is the first task. God comes in human flesh, teaches, loves, models, lives, dies, rises again. We know exactly that. Because we have a precise record from those who saw it our own eyes. That's something that in generations before Zechariah, they didn't know. But we know what it looks like to live in anticipation. We know what it looks like to live in the world is not as it really Because the third temple history is the second coming of Jesus. Where all the things that were inaugurated before are consummated fully. Where the king who is prophesied about in the Davidic covenant rules from a literal throne where the blessings that are offered to all the nations are consummated in faith. And all of those who have yielded in faith are reconciled to their God. He tabernacles among them, like it says in Revelation 21. So do we know a lot of things that they didn't know in the Old Testament? Of course we do. We live in light of the life of Christ in his first advent. But we also know exactly what it feels like to look around and say, all is not well. We need the Messiah to come again and finish what he started. We know what longing is. We know what hope feels like. We know the anticipation that is born in seasons just And so Advent is an incredible time for a group of people who are saying, we know it's not all right. I need something other than platitudes, sacrifices, and shiny things, and stuff wrapped in boxes. I have hope because things are not
verse 76, 77. And your child will be called prophet of the Most High. This is Zechariah prophesying about the Son of God. For he will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins. When John the Baptist was born, there was no question about what he would be or what he would be. To be clear, when you were born before the foundations of the earth, God knew exactly who you would be and what you would do. And your job is remarkably, strikingly similar to that of John the Baptist. If he was to tell the people of Israel about the salvation that was possible through the Messiah, your job, the Great Commission and other passages, is to tell the entirety of nations at the very ends of the earth about how salvation is possible exclusively through the Messiah. So when we get to a season like this one, and I love that old Charlie Brown comic, right, where Linus holds up the sign, Jesus is the answer. And Charlie Brown thought, well, yeah, but what's the question? That's the world. That is the entire world. Christians running around screaming from coast to coast, keep Christ in Christmas. And the nation's going, who can the world
seen Athens. And there are very specific expectations for believers who live in Athens. The world is not all right. Uh, we are not uh, Christ in power again. Father, I pray that we would be people sober to what has played the world. And that our sobriety would not be infused with focus. Help us to be confident, eager, speak in expectation, proud of the fact that Christ is coming again. And when he does all things in you, Jesus, for peace and hope and righteousness, by his rule and other enemies.